Amen. Hey, we're still talking our way through Ephesians, talking about how we are in the light. That's where that video is pointing us. Uh, thank you for coming to church. Uh, a couple of just programming notes for you. Uh, we've got our youth group, um, Pastor Lucas and Selena, have six teenagers up at summer camp this morning. So I encourage you to keep them in prayer. Uh, summer camp is awesome, but it also is not the easiest thing to administrate. There's 350 teenagers up there. So keeping track of our, track of our six is a job. But uh, um, I was up there. I went up there Friday, and we set up all day Friday, Saturday. First service was last night, and uh, it was awesome. I'm going back up today. So just keep us in prayer as we drive back and forth. And pray that those teenagers would experience the Lord, and uh, God would call them to new things, uh, rescue their hearts. Um, I'll be back down on Wednesday. Uh, to get ready for kids camp, and then I'll be back up Thursday. Uh, I just want you to know, uh, no church is coming Wednesday, so you'll see it. Greg's going to put on the sign out there, so you'll see it. Uh, if you come here on Wednesday nights, you're welcome to come to the parking lot, but you're not going to be able to get in. You just have to make a, I was going to say make a campfire out there, but don't do that. You'll get us in trouble. So uh, anyway, we will not be here Wednesday night. We'll be back at it next Wednesday, regular service. Uh, by the way, uh, if you're not coming on Wednesdays, you're missing out. This last Wednesday, we did a worship night, and it was awesome. The Lord was here. And our Lord is always here in a, un- a unique way on Wednesdays. So encourage you to be a part of it. Uh, yeah. So no church this coming Wednesday. If you're wondering, though, why we put so much time and money and effort for me, tons of driving, giving up a bunch of days, why we put so much time, money, effort into camp, it's because camp can be life-changing for a student, and if you can get a hold, if God can get a hold of a kid's life, uh, man, that can change the world. And we've been saying if we love the family, that we can be a part of changing the world. That's what we're trying to do, because uh, God loves the family. And I also, I believe in, uh, if you see any of the pictures from up there, like I said, 350 teenagers or whatever, I believe in being a part of something bigger than us, uh, and it's so good for you to go be a part of a thing that's bigger than you. Um, so it's been really good. Uh, if I've never met you before, I'd love to say hello afterwards. Shake your hands. We're just grateful that you came to church with us today. Father's Day last week was really fun. I hope uh, your dads and grandfathers and all the men in your life felt honored. And I hope you shared your candy with your wife because that is the wise and good thing to do. Uh, I want to mention, uh, it, all of you I'm sure saw the news about Roe versus Wade this week and, and all of that stuff. And uh, of course, we value life. Man, it's so important to me value all life uh, from the moment of conception. Psalm 139, right, says, the Lord knit us together, our mother's womb, right? We're fearfully and wonderfully made. We believe that about every life. And it's our job to continue to pray. It's our job to take care of those who need to be taken care of. That's why we give money to Stanton. And, and uh, uh, we will just encourage uh, us as a church to be part of the solution and uh, continue to pray over that. Pray for safety for our church. Right? I mean, uh, when you stand for the truth, it can be dangerous. So pray for safety for our church. Uh, and let's be known as a place uh, where the light shines. Amen? Amen. And let people know about Jesus and uh, take care of those who need taken care of. So, oh, man, just continue to pray about that. Uh, today, Ephesians 4, we're jumping back into. We're going to be talking about uh, verses 25 through 31. Two weeks ago, uh, pre-Father's Day, we talked about how we uh, should be living in the light. That's kind of what that that video had to do with it. How when we are in God's light, uh, when we live in God's light, there's some things that just, they fundamentally begin to happen. There's a fundamental change in who we are if we are living in the light of Christ. See, when we accept Christ and we begin to walk in the light, we aren't who we were before, right? We're different. 
We're, we become a whole different person when we accept Christ. And Paul encouraged the Ephesians he was writing to, he encouraged them to not go back to the ways of the godless. Also, when we are in the light, when we're living in the light, we learn new things. If we're going to throw off the old ways, like it says here in Ephesians, we got to put something new in its place. And if we don't, we'll go right back to what we were doing before. Finally, we talked about very crucially that when we're living in the light, our very nature begins to change. What it is that's deep inside of us, the stuff that just naturally comes out, that's our nature. And that's what begins to change when we're living in the light. We talked about how in order to take up the new nature, we've got to completely throw away the old one. Uh, I had an example here of some of uh, my favorite new shoes that I like to wear and also some old ones. And, and the example was I can't put on the new ones that are comfortable and feel nice on my feet until I put away the old ones. Can't put on the new until you throw away the old. And we ended up talking about how God is a restorer of hearts. God knows what he made us to be, and he can help us get there. God knows what he made you to be, and he knows how to help you get there. And that leads us to this week where we're talking about just existing in the truth. You see, when we take on the new nature, and if we really have taken on the new nature, Paul wrote Ephesians, he's telling us something really important here. He's telling us that what we believe and what we do are tied together. You can write that at the top of your notes or whatever, because I'm going to say that a bunch today. What we believe and what we do are tied together. What we believe, it should inform our actions. If we really believe it, it should change our actions. And our life should begin to show it each day. You see, when we walk in the light, there is certain truth that's just, it's evident in our lives. And Paul, finally, we've been, I've been teasing this, he begins to get into some very practical teaching. It was very relevant to them when it was written in ancient times. It's very relevant to us now. And I've kind of compared it to how it is uh, when you're learning to drive, right? If you're going to teach someone to drive, there's the instruction part. And if you are a good and a careful parent, you spend a long time giving your kid the instruction part. We taught Christina, to, I taught Christina to drive, and I spent a long, long time trying to make sure she was listening. But she never actually would learn to drive until she got to get in the driver's seat, put, put her hands at 10 and 2, put away the phone. She didn't have a phone at the time, but, you know, do the things that we taught her to do. She never learned until she got to do the practical part. And this morning, we're talking about the practical part, what it looks like when we start to live this new life. Day in, day out. We're finally getting to put our hands on the wheel. In these next several verses, we see four different examples we're going to talk about this morning of what the truth looks like when it's present in our lives, as well as the results of that truth. All of these things you're going to see as we read them that they have a specific focus, and up to this point, there's been quite a bit about how we relate to God. And here the attention turns to how we relate to others in the church and others outside of the church. And each of them you're going to hear as I read the scripture that we're given an instruction. And then Paul gives us a practical reason for the instruction. And all of these are connected to this concept we talked about two weeks ago, uh, getting rid of the old so we can put on the new. What we believe and what we do, we're tied together. Ephesians 4, 25 through 31, I'm reading the NIV. Let's read it together this morning. It says this. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. 
Anyone who has been stealing must not steal, must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they, must, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, and that may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all the bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, God, forgave you. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. First, we see this. Number one, when we walk in the truth, we reject falsehood. We reject falsehood. Verse 25 said, therefore, each of you must put, on, must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. I know it seems kind of, an, kind of like an obvious thing to say. We're talking about living in the truth, and then I say you must tell the truth. You must reject falsehood if you're going to tell the truth. I know that sounds obvious. But I believe that telling the absolute 100% truth with our words and with our life, it's a vital part of the Christian life. You've got to tell the truth. And Paul's actually quoting from the Old Testament here. I think I have it on the screen, Zechariah 8, 16. It says this, these are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. So Paul, if he's talking to people who were Jewish who would have known the scriptures, he's saying, hey, this has been written down. You should know this. He's reiterating something that they would have known if they were Jewish people. But also telling the truth is just something we feel like everybody is supposed to know. You're just supposed to know that if you're going to try and be a good person, right? And in the kingdom of God, though, rejecting falsehood, I think it takes on more importance. Because hear this, the work of God, the work that God wants to do in this world is centered around the truth. God has work that he wants to do, but it's centered around the truth. There's this very famous scripture that we often quote from Jesus, the one about how people come to the Father, John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We've talked recently, uh, several weeks ago, about how every one of us on this earth has been commissioned by God to tell others about him. All of us have that mission if we know Jesus. And if what God wants to do on this earth, in our cities, in our workplace, in our home, is centered around the truth, and I would say to you that it is since his son that he sent said he is the way and the truth. Then the truth is one of the most important things we can find. we got to have it. we got to find it. And as Christians, we can't fully find the truth unless we completely reject falsehood. It's one or the other. Has anyone here ever driven a golf cart? Golf cart drivers? A few of you, yeah. So uh, golf carts, you know, I've, I've played a little bit of golf, and it's, there's an art to choosing the right one. If you play the same course, right, you know which numbers are the fastest. I'm not the only one that does that, right? You want to pick the good carts. You know some of them, if they're gas carts, how they react, as opposed to if they're electric carts and those kinds of things. Um, but there's this thing about golf carts, right? Even if you have a really fast one, and you start going down a hill, and you have that little pedal floor. They've only got one gear, right? There's no shifting or anything like that. You're going down the hill, but it'll only go a certain speed, right? Because it hits a thing called a governor. Like, they've built a thing in there, and it will, will not let it go as fast as it could possibly go. Now, I will tell you, I might be spoiling it for the golf courses. I'll tell you there's a secret. If you go down the hill and you put it in neutral, it turns off the governor. 
So if you crash your golf cart, it's not my fault. Try it at your own risk. But, okay, I just told you guys something new here. Um, the thing is, if we don't reject falsehood, it's like we live with a governor in our life as a Christian. If we don't completely reject the opposite of the truth, it's like we're living with a governor. We can never discover everything that we're made to be. Never go as fast as God made us to go in this world. The governor never gets turned off if we can't completely reject falsehood. I want to say something critical at this point that it decides whether or not we can reject falsehood or not. And we talked about it in men's Sunday school this morning. And that is this. We will struggle to tell the truth to others if we can't tell the truth to ourselves. Man, it's so important. Important, more important now than it's ever been, especially in 2022. Our kids and our teenagers growing up, we have to teach them to tell the truth to themselves. You've got to be honest about what is going on in your heart. I'm not saying it's easy. In fact, it's actually really hard to do, to be honest about the reason you took the actions you took. But I believe it's one of the most important things we can do, to continually be examining, examining what our motivations are for the actions we take. Now, we might not like everything we find at first. In fact, you probably won't. <laughs> if, if it's anything like my heart, I don't like everything I find in there. And for that reason, it's hard. But if we can do the courageous work of examining what's happening inside of us, then recognizing and rejecting falsehood suddenly becomes much easier. And you know what I found? When we're in the middle of something untrue, and we've all been there, yeah, you know, even if it was when you were a kid, when you're in the middle of something untrue, it seems like the worst thing in the world is if the truth gets found out. When you're in the middle of a lie or a half-truth or whatever, the worst thing in the world is if someone finds out. You feel like that. But the truth of the matter is that as soon as a lie or a falsehood is exposed to the light, it has no power over you. It might not be pleasant in the moment when it gets found out or when you come clean, but it no longer has any power over you. And then you get to live in the power of the truth because the light has power over the darkness. It's important to note as well the way this is phrased. It doesn't say it's a good idea for you to put off falsehood. You know, when you get around to it, you should put off falsehood. It says, you must put off falsehood. So now we're getting to the part, like I said, this is the practical. This is, the, this is a command, not a suggestion. So we are sinning if we are living in a state of falsehood or even a state of half-truth. It's a sin to live that way. And the type of behavior Paul is talking about here, it includes white lies. It includes exaggerating when it's not for the purpose of humor. We all exaggerate for the purpose of humor. But it's a part of getting rid of the old nature and taking on the new. And like I said, there's a reason for all of these. What's the reason? The reason is because we are all parts of the same body. The reason we have to reject falsehood is because we're all parts of the same body. And a body that's functioning well, it relays information accurately to the other parts of the body. Read this example this week in a commentary, I think, and it went something like this. You know, if your eyes, if your senses uh, see a pot of boiling water, but they say to your hands, hey, this, this pot of boiling water is not hot, this results in pain for the hand, right? The senses got to tell the truth to the rest of the body. And as a church, one of our pursuits is to find unity. And write this down, falsehood is an enemy of unity. Half-truths in our relationships are an enemy of unity. 
if you don't know where you stand with someone, then it's pretty hard to find unity. To walk in the truth, we have to reject falsehood. And what we believe and what we do are tied together. Verse 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Very famous scripture right here. Once again, Paul calls on this Old Testament scripture. Uh, Psalm 4, verse 4. And I love the New Living Translation version here. It says this. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. If you've been in church or even around church or alive as a human for very long, you've heard this before. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. This is one of those things people say in everyday life that they don't even realize comes from the Bible. But here this, part of throwing off the old nature is exchanging bitterness for trust in God's hand. We got to exchange bitterness for trust in God's sovereign hand. First, let's get it out of the way. This isn't said in a legalistic way. It's not the literal, literal going down of the sun that we're supposed to measure by. If it were, then Idaho in the summer would be a great place if you wanted to be angry, right? We just had a day, June 21st, where the sun went down at like 10, 20 or something. Or if you were really desperate, you know what you could do? Just me thinking out loud here. You could move to Alaska where the sun never goes down for six months of the year. Then you could be angry as long as you want to, if we were interpreting it literally. You'd be like, where did John go? Oh, he went to Alaska. (laughs) His neighbor kept waking up at 6 a.m. mowing the lawn on Saturdays. He got mad. He just moved away. Figures he's got six months or so. It's not literal, the actual sun going down. Notice something important, though. It doesn't say, don't get angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger is what it says. After all, we see in the Bible examples of anger that are certainly not sinful, right? There's the famous scripture. Everyone loves to quote this scripture when they want to justify being angry, right, about Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. You get mad. Well, Jesus got mad at the money changers, which is true. That's Matthew 21. There's an instance in Mark, though, where Jesus is facing criticism from the Pharisees for healing a man on the Sabbath. And I think it's much more poignant what Jesus says, Mark 3, 5. He looked around at them angrily. He was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Deeply saddened by their hard hearts. It's important for us to see that when Jesus was angry, it's because his heart was grieved over sin and pain. It wasn't because his neighbor got up and mowed the lawn at 6 a.m. And as Christians, man, we face this in the news this week. We must not be tolerant of evil. And I finished this before the Roe versus Wade thing uh, happened officially. But as Christians, we must not be tolerant of evil. What Jesus had and what we sometimes feel when we see the condition of the world, it's more like righteous indignation. Jesus, he was indignant at the people turning the temple into a place to make money. He was indignant at the hardness of the Pharisee's heart when he healed a man on the Sabbath. But the key and what the scripture is trying to tell us is to make sure that the anger, even if it is justifiable, righteous indignation, it doesn't control us. And what don't let the sun go down on your anger really means, it means don't let anger turn into bitterness. Feel what you got to feel, but don't let it turn into bitterness. And anger turns to bitterness when we internalize it instead of give it to God. 
When we plant it in our heart instead of give it to God, that's when it becomes bitterness. Of course, it's okay, and there's examples in the Bible of feeling hurt and anger. And I want to say it's actually downright harmful to pretend hard things are not painful when they actually are. Don't pretend nothing bad happens to you. That's a road to pain. David says in Psalm 119, indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. It's gripped by indignation. The thing is, there's a, a biblical answer to the anger. We find it in Romans where Paul writes, if you've been here on Wednesdays, uh, you know where I'm going with this. Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. So here's the thing. We feel the anger and the frustration, of course, when we see the things uh, that are shameful in the news, right? When we see people rallying uh, for terminating a pregnancy instead of being pro-life, of course, we feel frustration, indignation. But we must leave the vengeance up to God. The vengeance is God's job. It's not ours. And leaving the vengeance up to God, it takes the ultimate responsibility out of my hands, which I'm so grateful for. (laughs) Many of you, like I have, you've probably taken vengeance on someone verbally or whatever, thinking it's going to make you feel better. Or maybe even that it will fix the situation. You've probably all thought this. Oh, I'm going to go say this to this person. That's going to show them. Everyone's going to feel better when I go say this thing that I've been storing up. But have you noticed it never does? (laughs) It never helps because true vengeance or changing a heart, that's a job that only God can do. Like we prayed earlier, I can't change a heart. You know, it may take, uh, and I've lived this, it may take giving the frustration or anger to God each night, not just one. (laughs) You You may have to do it over and over again. But we must do it. And Paul gives us the reason here, verse 27. It's because unresolved anger gives the enemy room to create chaos in our lives. Anger is an emotion that we feel, but we give it to God. Bitterness is something that we allow to live inside of us day after day and fester. And that's what we have to avoid. That's what it means to not let the sun go down on your anger. Once again, not a suggestion. He's not saying, might be a good idea to not let the sun go down on your anger. No, it says, do not. And if we harbor bitterness purposely in our hearts, friends, we are sinning. That's what Paul's telling us here. And if we're going to live in the truth, we must keep anger from becoming bitterness. Because remember, what we believe and what we do, they're tied together. Verse 28. We see this, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Again, this seems like such an obvious thing to say, right? If you're a normal, law-abiding person, you probably don't need to be told, hey, don't steal. Because everybody knows that stealing is wrong. I bet most people who actually steal all the time, they would probably admit to you that it's wrong, (laughs) Everyone knows stealing is wrong. But a little bit of context, as always, might help here. It's possible, I think, well, it is possible that Paul had in mind when he wrote this people who were seasonal workers. They had a skill that they could only use for part of the year. And so instead of finding other work when their trade went out of season, they would resort to stealing or something dishonest in order to survive. 
I think Patrick was talking about this this morning in Sunday school as well. In that case, it's a little easier to justify the action, right? Well, you know, I'm only doing this until my work picks up. Well, it's not my fault that the seasons change the way they do or the economy went down or fill in the Blake reason. But I think the focus is not as much on the do not steal part because that's pretty obvious. I think the focus here is on the next section of the verse. And Paul says something here that as humans, as Christians, it gives us vital instruction for our, for our lives. Yes, of course, if you're st- I'm just telling you, if you're here and you've been stealing, stop stealing. Thou shalt not steal. It's, ten- tenth comm- it's one of the Ten Commandments. It's in here. Just don't do that anymore. But just as importantly, he tells them something really important. What does it say next? You must work doing something useful with your own hands. Where's where the command part comes in? You must work. In each of these cases, right, Paul has given us specific instruction about how to throw off the old nature and take up the new, right? He says, don't lie, tell the truth. He says, exchange bitterness for trust in God. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And now he's saying, stop stealing and work instead. It's important enough that he's lumping it in with this other stuff. And I'll just be honest with you, the way I've seen it, the way that God created the world is that if we work, then we will have what we need. That's the way that it works. And I'm not just referring to the way that work is now, because sure, there's gray area now as far as what kind of work you do and how much work you do and whether you're being paid what you're worth. But before that system, right, when this was written, before that, if you wanted to eat, you went and you worked the land, right? If you wanted to have somewhere to live, you, you did the work yourself and you built yourself a shelter. Proverbs 28 and 19, and this is not the only proverb about this. It's all over Proverbs. Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies will have their fill of poverty. The bottom line is when it comes to someone who's healthy, who can't work, God has given us everything we need to provide for ourselves. And he's saying, yeah, don't steal, but he's also saying, go work if you can work. And Paul, who wrote this letter that we're studying, and he wrote most of the New Testament, he worked as a tent maker to support himself. Jesus worked for years in his earthly ministry, before his earthly ministry as a carpenter. We know that. In the Old Testament, God was very clear. He directed his people to work hard for six days, rest on the seventh day. Once again, here in Ephesians, we're being given a command, not a suggestion. We're told in no uncertain terms, all over Proverbs, all over the Bible, that laziness and refusing to work uh, leads to destruction. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Don't shoot the messenger, but it's in the Bible. I would submit something to you because I hear you about it being frustrating trying to find the right job or a job that fulfills you. Even if the work you can find right now or in your life isn't ideal when you do it and you do your best god will honor you he'll honor you by providing for you for one and maybe even by eventually providing work that you will enjoy more there's people in here that can give you testimony this i'm sure i'm gonna give you one in a minute and once again paul gives good reason why god has set it up this way the reason for hard work was a saying there so that we can be generous to others The Bible commands us to give to those who are less fortunate. To be generous to those who are in tough situations. And when we who are able-bodied, we do work, then we're able to fulfill that mandate to be generous. 
the way that God tells us to be generous. Like I said, I'd love to give you a quick testimony. Those who might be frustrated with your work situation, whether you're in here, hearing this, hearing it online, podcast later, whatever. These days, man, I'm so blessed. 42 years old, and I get to spend my time doing what I love to do, what I'm called to do, right? I get to pastor this church. That's the whole thing that I do. Uh, this particular week, I got probably, uh, I got 40 hours in for sure between Monday and Wednesday, probably close to 50 between Monday and Thursday. Then I turned around, drove up to camp on Friday. Um, man, I tell you that, uh, not to make myself sound awesome, but just to tell you, it's a joy to get to do what I get to do. Do all of that stuff, and I'll do it again this week, over and over and over again until the Lord tells me not to. Um, because it's what God made me to do, and I'm so blessed to get to do it. But I had to chuckle this week because I was reminded of how it hasn't always been that way for me. Um, I've talked a little bit about how for a little while I worked at a production company doing, uh, well, so when you work at a production company, it sounds glamorous, like you go run sound at big events. And I get, did get to do some big events, but when the economy was way down in 2009, it was uh, going from the first church we were at to the second one, went to work there part-time, and I needed a job, and that was my skill, like running sound, setting stuff up, the skill I had besides being a youth pastor. So I went around to the places in the valley. It was much smaller than, you know, and uh, I made a little resume, and I took it around to all the, because I knew someone at every place, just trying to talk them in and give me a job. And I finally did. I talked to this one guy. Uh, the company's still around. I'm not going to say what it is, but talked to this one guy into giving me a job. I was so grateful to have the job. Uh, it was down here in Boise. We lived in Caldwell, technically, so I would drive from Caldwell over to Boise, like pretty much downtown, and then I would drive out to Cuna to the church and then back to Caldwell pretty much every day. And uh, this guy, I, I was making 10 bucks an hour, super grateful for the 10 bucks an hour, until I found out that if you called and had me come fix a thing, that he charged you $70 for me to walk in the room. It's much harder to be grateful when I knew he was making 60 bucks for me, be there, for me being there and I was getting 10 much harder for me to be grateful for it when I knew that if I went one second over 40 hours, he's going to be cranky because he had to pay me overtime. He didn't want to do that. But I worked hard there for a year. Got to do some big shows. Got to do some big shows for him over the years. But this week, I had to go in there to buy a little piece of gear that I needed for my guitar stuff. And I'll tell you what, I had to turn him down. I walked in there, and he's like, hey, I got this show you could do for me. I got this show you could do for me. And I said, man, I'm going to honestly say to you, I don't have time. <laughs> Like, I literally do not have time to come do this for you. I couldn't have time if I wanted to. The reason is because God blesses it when we work hard. I haven't always gotten it right, but in that situation, I did. Worked hard for that guy. God has delivered us here, and I'm so grateful to get to do the thing now that God made me to do. And I'm living proof that God honors it when, when we set our hand to what he tells us to do. And remember, when it comes to our work, what we believe and what we do, we're tied together. When it comes to your work, what you believe and what you do, we're tied together. Finally, verse 29, we're almost done here. Before we walk in the truth, when we carefully consider our words. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, depending on which version you have, it may use a different word than unwholesome. If you have New King James, it says corrupt. If you have New Living, it says foul. But the Greek word here is that they use, it's referring to something like rotten or, or spoiled food. 
And that paints an interesting picture to me of this type of talk. Because as far as I understand it, I don't have a great sense of smell like I've mentioned. But as far as I understand it, if spoiled food is present, it wrecks everything else around it. Right? So how many of you are A-banning? Like, I don't even know. This week, uh, so in the church, I eat lunch here several times a week. I, like, bring sandwich stuff and stash it in there. And, you know, if my kids don't eat it, then I use it for lunches. And there was a big old bag of salad in there. So on Wednesday, I was like, ah, salad sounds good today. My wife will be proud of me if I have salad. <laughs> right? Dump some in a bowl. Put some ranch on it. Ate it happily. Wednesday night, saw Pastor Wendy throwing all that salad out. <laughs> She didn't want to spoil the whole fridge, I guess. I don't know. She said it was probably fine that day. <laughs> if spoiled food is present, I didn't throw up or anything, so it's probably fine. If spoiled food is present, it wrecks everything around it. That's why she got rid of it. And the same is true of the way that we talk. If we're speaking in a way that is crude, or if we're speaking in a way that's uh, even just always discouraging, those words have an, avert, an adverse effect on everybody that hears them. I really don't think, I can't read the scripture uh, without applying another one that comes to mind right away. Proverbs 18, 21. This is New Living Translation. The tongue can bring death or life. Man, you want to talk about uh, a few words that mean a lot. The tongue can bring death or life. Pair that with Matthew 12, 36, where Jesus tells us, everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. starting to sound a lot more like a command than a suggestion, huh? I don't know about you, but when I read these scriptures, it just challenges me to be very careful about what I say. And no one, if they're honest, would say they get this right all the time. But hopefully, they encourage us to do what the second part of this verse says, which is to be good and helpful in everything we say. And I want to say, before we finish here, that I'm not saying you never say anything it's hard or challenging. That's part of life. You've got to say stuff that's hard and challenging sometimes. Sometimes you have to stick to your guns with a customer service representative, right? <laughs> but the thing is, everything we say should be processed through that question. Are we speaking life or are we speaking death? Everything we say, are we speaking life or are we speaking death? And I think we can just boil it down to this one statement. What we say matters. Every one of us, the words that come out of our mouth, what we say matters. Jesus said, uh, we're going to give an account for every empty word we've spoken. Once again, it's a command. We're sinning if we're using foul or corrupt language. for being, being discouraging all the time. And if we're throwing off the old nature and putting on the new nature, then we put away corrupt language and we pick up a spirit of encouragement. I'd also ask you to consider for a moment that uh, one word of encouragement, it can make the difference in someone's day. My friend Adam Cook, pastor of the church in Nampa, he said in a message a little while back, something that stuck with me that I wrote down, he said, everyone you meet could be one tipping point from a life change. The person at the DMV, the customer service person, the person in the drive-thru, they could be one tipping point from a life change. Today could be the day when someone is asking God for encouragement and you or I might get the privilege of being the one that God sends. They might be going to work begging the Lord, God, could you please send me somebody today? If you're real, send me someone today to be nice. And we might get the privilege of being that one. 
You see, when we walk in the truth, we carefully consider our words because what we believe and what we do, they're tied together. As we close today, I just want to encourage you with a couple specific lines of these last verses. We're going to do something a little different than we usually do. Uh, to finish, out, finish it out, let's read verses 30 through 32 together. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. We see in verse 31 there just this encapsulation of everything we just talked about. It talks about how, uh, you know, God has placed the Holy Spirit within us to comfort us, to seal our salvation, to hold us for the day he comes back for us. But I want us to reflect this morning on a couple of sentences. This is how we're going to end this morning. I want, to reflect, want us to reflect on a couple of sentences. These are from the New Living Translation, and they're from verses 31 and 32. One of them is this. I believe we have on the screen. Um, you guys can go ahead and dim the lights, kind of how we usually do at the end of service right now. We're just going to spend some time doing this. One of them is this. It says, remember, he has identified you as his own. Remember, he has identified you as his own. If we have that, Sandy, you can throw that up there for me. Reflect on that for a moment. Remember, he has identified you as his own. And the he he's talking about in there, that is God, the one who breathed life into us. He has identified us as his own. Obeying the commands that we talked about today, on their own, they don't save us. It's the grace of Jesus that saves us. But when we accept him, if there's true life change, then these aspects of our life, they begin to look a little different. But when we accept Jesus, what we see on the screen, that's what happens. God identifies us as one of his own. We become his sons and his daughters. He loves us, friends, and he's proud to claim us as his. Reflect on it. Remember, he has identified you as his own. Next part I think we have up there says this, be kind to each other tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. And reflect on those two things, friends. Let them sink into your heart this morning. We're to be kind to each other, patient and tenderhearted, and why are we to be patient, tenderhearted, kind? Because God has been kind and patient towards us. Through the blood of his son, Jesus. The ultimate kindness, the ultimate patience. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes this morning? Um, all of us have our heads bowed, our eyes closed. I just want to take a moment. Um, if you're here this morning uh, and uh, you feel like you're far from the Lord, whether you've never accepted him before, never accepted Christ, or... Maybe you walked into this place and you need to rededicate your life. Um, I want to give you a chance to do that today. 
Bible says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever would perish, would find life in him. It says in John chapter 1 that when we call in the name of Jesus, we accept him into our heart. We get to go to heaven and God identifies us as his own. So if that's you this morning and you just need uh, us to pray together with you, I'm not going to single you out, but I'd love to pray over you. If that's you this morning, you need to accept Christ for the first time, rededicate your life, would you raise your hand uh, when I count to three, just so I know we can pray. One, two, three. Raise your hand if you need to this morning. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much. Friends, we had someone, uh, we have some people that, want to accept Christ, rededicate their lives today. So here's what we're going to do. As a church body, we're going to pray with them. So I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to ask every one of you, repeat after me. Those of you who know the Lord, you are just agreeing, celebrating in prayer with those who are accepting Christ today. So would all of you repeat after me today. Say, Dear Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you that you came to earth. You lived a life with no sin. And you died and you rose again for me. Today, I accept you into my heart. I am now a Christian. I'll live for you the rest of my life. Please forgive me of all my sins. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friends, you can look. We had some people pray that prayer this morning. I believe they meant it. And there, uh, friends, the Bible says that when one person accepts the Lord, there's a party in heaven. And uh, yeah, we can celebrate today. It's awesome. Yes. But all of us, I'm going to pray once more. But Sandy, would you throw those last two things up there? Sorry, I keep going back to those. Uh, remember, he has identified you as his own. Be kind to each other. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you this last 30 seconds, friends. Let's let these things guide us this week. You're his sons and daughters. Let's be kind to one another, even those that frustrate us. Lord Jesus, thank you for these people. Thank you for this church. Thank you that you made this day and you ordained it a long time ago. You knew every single person who was going to be here. I pray those that made a decision for you, uh, Lord, that this would be the best moment of their entire life. They walk out of this place. They would feel new. Um, Lord Jesus, that a life change would begin from this moment forward. Uh, we come against any schemes of the enemy in your mighty name, Jesus. Would you protect them and circle them with your angels? We're so grateful for your presence here. Thankful for your word that is true and alive. Would you let it guide us and direct us? Thank you for your forgiveness and your grace in our lives. Would you let it go with us this week, Jesus? We pray these things in your name.